Hello everybody and welcome to this week's Rugby League Back Chat from the LD Nutrition Stadium in Featherstone. The Easter weekend has been and gone and to reflect on it we have three special guests. Starting with the editor of League Express, Martin Sadler, the chairman of Newcastle Funder, Mick Hogan and the CEO of Featherstone Rovers, David Longo. Gents, welcome. It's been a, an interesting week of ups and downs for various different clubs. Martin, I'll, I'll come to you first. It, I'm sure you've had your eye on everything that's been going on. Who, who <laughs> have been, who've been the winners and losers of this Easter weekend for you? Well, Saints are, are obviously the big winners, aren't they, St Helens? Although they had Luke Thompson suffering a what looks like a serious ankle injury uh, on Monday against Hull FC, so that's bad news for them. But, I mean, they're now four points clear at the top of the Super League table. I think they're looking, the way they're playing at the moment, I think they're looking pretty invincible. And even um, losing Luke Thompson, they've got Matty Lees waiting, you know, to come in and take that place and hopefully for him have an extended run at prop forward. So, you know, at the moment, the coast looks to be clear for Saints. They took 6,000 fans or thereabouts to Wigan on Good Friday and had a stunning victory against the old enemy. So what could possibly go wrong for them? I mean, the only, the only thing you've got to say is sometimes just when you think everything's going great in rugby league, something happens to trip you up. And I'm sure everybody knows that who's been involved with the game for, for a long time. So, you know, let's not count too many chickens, but I think Saints, Saints are just looking tremendous. But, um, and also, you know, a, a few of the clubs, Sheffield Eagles in the championship, we've got David from the championship and, and Mick from League One. Sheffield Eagles, you know, they're flying high, you know, up, um, you know, really Toronto are at the head of that table, but, but Toulouse and the Eagles... Uh, you know, coming up strong on the rails. So, you know, been, it's been a fascinating time. David, just on the championship, we might as well go down the line. As Martin mentioned, a great week for Sheffield Eagles. Who else stood out for you? Yeah, I think... Um, you can say Featherstone. Yeah, well, I think we've done all right over the Easter weekend. I think our uh, performance against York City Knights on Good Friday were pretty phenomenal. We, we played really well, probably one of the uh, best games we've had all year. Um, and even yesterday's game, although we didn't get the win against Toronto, you know, we were five minutes uh, from getting that victory and a couple of more uh, players where we'd, we'd have executed them a little bit better would have gone on to win that game against Toronto. But I agree with Martin. I mean, I think Sheffield are, are a bit of a surprise package, if I have to be honest. They have, they have recruited well off-season. You know, Anthony Fackery is, a, is an outstanding player. You know, he played well for Featherstone for a number of seasons and, you know, he's, uh, he's performing pretty well. But again, you know, we've... We've played Sheffield this season down at down at Featherstone and, um, and and we beat Sheffield. So I think it's hotting up. You know the Championship is uh, it's a fantastic league and there's possibly eight teams that are going for these five spots and certainly the month of May for Featherstone Rovers is going to be crucial. From one topsy turvy league to another, I think they're all topsy turvy this year. Right? Yeah, I mean, everyone, yes. can be, everyone. League One's pretty much been the same. Nick, I mean you've you've had highs and lows already this season as of pretty much every club who, who stood out for you over you obviously got the weekend off which is a rare come we did yes uh, I mean it's the two top teams isn't it it's Hunslet and Workington and I think when everybody was talking about you know who, who might challenge they were names that perhaps weren't on, on the end of everybody's tongue at the start of the year and you just look at it now Workington were were were, were sort of tipped heavily to, to win the division they're actually out of the playoff spot at the minute in seventh and you've got London Scholars up in third so it's a really, it's a really interesting league, a bit like the Championship and Super League. I think we've got the most competitive set of leagues we've had in many a season. Martin, you're obviously covering all, all of these leagues. It's, it is so hard 
to predict. We're in a prediction league, and it's, <laughs> it's impossible. And not doing very well in Well, you yeah. aren't. I'm doing all right. But it's it, it's great to see, isn't it, that the products are, are coming together and, and all these divides in the table are seemingly going and becoming less and less obvious. Yes, I mean, although Easter's a great period, isn't it, for for for, for the cream rising to the top, mm. so they always say, because some of the weaker clubs, because the demands on players are so great over Easter, those clubs with limited squads will tend to struggle. Mm. And we've seen that with Hulkingston Rovers, who have had loads of injuries. And quite frankly, they were playing youngsters on, on Monday against Warrington, who really, you know, probably it's a step too far for them. Mm. And they ended up being hammered at home by by the Wolves, and that sort of thing happens to, happens to a few clubs, doesn't it? it it's, it's just the way of the world for as long as we keep having um, two fixtures over Easter. And I'm, I'm not a great fan, I've got to say, mm. of uh, playing on Good Friday and Easter Monday for, for, for that reason. I think it, it distorts the, um, the, the table apart from anything else. But, but having said that, I mean, it, wasn't it great to see such big crowds on Good Friday? Mm -hmm. at, uh, you know, over 20,000 at Hull, 22,000 at Wigan for their game against Saints, you know, and, 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 you know, Super League were putting out stuff over the weekend, you know, sort of praising the fact that, that you know, the, the support seems to be growing for Super League. And I, I think it's the same in, uh, in the Championship as well. There were nearly 6,000 at Widnes, weren't they, to see, right. to see their game against Lee. That's probably a bigger crowd than Widnes got any time last year when they were in Super League and doing so badly. So, it's, you know, it's, it's, there are some very positive signs for the game, I think. Uh, in, in, all, in all three divisions and you know long, long may that continue because we all want to see competitive matches I think at, at every level. I'm going to pick up on the point you made about playing over, over Easter and the demands of it because we've got two, two chaps here at part-time clubs where the, the demand's even greater. Dav, just on the attendances though, it was uh, the highest aggregate Super League have, have ever had on, on Good Friday, how encouraging is that, how much can we read into that do you think? Well, I think we've got to take every positive we can out of the attendances. I think it was fantastic to see the uh, the stadiums full of people. The weather obviously helped. You know, the uh, again we've uh, we seem to be starting the, the seasons very early. For me, too early. You know, I think January and February are months that we mm -hmm. potentially should be avoiding if we're going to call our game a summer game. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, I, I saw the um, the crowds at Hull and and at Wigan, and it's it is fantastic to see. And I think we just need to, as a sport now, I think we are now starting to understand that there are events that we need to market. It's not just about yeah. the game itself. I think clubs are getting a lot better on social <coughs> media, aren't they, at, at thinking up really interesting ways to promote their games. We're seeing that more and more, actually, and I, I think that's a, a really encouraging thing. Warrington, I think, are probably leading the way yeah. on that with the way they use Wolfie to do all sorts of yeah. pretty smart things. You know, and it, it's, I think they're incredibly innovative, and it's not surprising that Warrington's crowds really are. They're, they're, they're posting some record crowds for individual matches. Their, their game against Salford recently was the highest ever attendance for a Salford home game, for example. You know, and it, 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 it's, it's good to see that everybody's becoming a little bit a bit more marketing savvy. I'm, I'm telling you now, the uh, the Featherstone one with Thompson Tete as a Terminator was by far the best one I've seen <laughs> yeah, so far right. this season. Mick, we talked a bit about it there. An events culture seems to be coming into rugby league, where has it come from and is it driving the sport where it needs to get to? Yeah, I think if you're going to develop any sport, you, you, you've got to have big events that people aspire to be part of. So whether that's, whether that's big games or whether that's uh, you know, a round of games over a particular day, um, 
that, that's how the sport's going to grow. But I think what we've, we've also got to do is, it, it, you know, Martin's just mentioned it there about Warrington. If every individual club across the three leagues just aims for, you know, that 5%, 10% growth, aims to do their own little thing that bit better, that's how the sport's going to grow and, and prosper. You know, we've got to stop looking for the magic bullet from the RFL or from the Super League headquarters because yeah. there isn't one. It's about everybody having a, you know, collective view in this and just doing what they do that bit better year on year and that's how the sport will grow. Has, in your opinion, Martin, too many clubs for too often, probably before this season anyway, tried to rely on the RFL to market the game for them rather than market... Well, the RFL ought to be titles. marketing the game. You know, of course, but it's a responsibility no on clubs that. as well. And now Super League, of course, they've, they've got their own operation mm. and obviously there's a strong marketing element to that and hopefully we'll see that develop. Mm. But obviously everybody, ha you know, you, 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 as a club you can't sit back and just, just hope for the best, mm -hmm. can you? you? You've got to, you, you've always got to, um, to, to, to devise a strategy that's going to draw people in to see you. And it can't just be based on the fact that you're going to have a winning side. Because, you know, on average clubs lose half their games, don't they? You can't, yeah. you know, you can't, you can't say come and support us because we'll have a winning team. Because you never know if you're going to. Yeah. I, 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 always, I always remember a, a TV programme I saw many years ago about the Oakland A's baseball side in, in, in the United States in Major League Baseball. And they were having a, they'd just been bought by the people who own Levi Jeans. And they were having a, a, a meeting with their PR people. And the PR guy turned up and they said to him, what's your strategy for this season? He unveiled this thing and it said, come and watch the Oakland A's, you know, have a winning season. And these guys said to him, well, for the last 10 seasons, we've not had a winning season. What makes you think we're going to have one this year? And he says, well, surely you think you are going to. And they said, yeah, but we don't know we're going to. We don't know that we're going to have a winning season. And they sent him away and made him come back. And at the next meeting, the idea was, he unfurled a thing saying, come and see Major League Baseball at the Oakland A's. And that was the message. Come and see ba Major League Baseball. Don't come and see the Oakland A's. Come and yeah. see Major League Baseball. And that season, they had another losing season, but the crowds went up by about 10%. So in other words, they'd got a strategy that focused on something they could deliver because they could deliver Major League Baseball. Yeah. They couldn't deliver a winning side. So... We've got to be smarter, I think. You know, all too often we try and promote ourselves, don't we, on the fact that we're going to have a winning side. But the key thing is, how do you promote a side that isn't a winning side? Yeah. That's the real test of marketing and, skills. And with clubs as well, there's two things we can't control. One's what happens on the field, sure. and the other's the weather. Mm. But if you take that out of it... There's, there's and a refereeing, of course, <laughs> though, which is I, I, on the field. Which is <laughs> on the field, but yeah. there's 50 other things we can control. You know, it's, yeah. it's how do we serve the food and drink, Absolutely. you know, are the staff courteous, is the stadium clean and safe, you know, do we have a good PA system, do you have a big screen, there's, you know, are there things for the kids to do, is the club shop competitively priced? All these things have an influence over whether people come back, and if we get those right... Yeah, great. If you have a winning season, it helps it, but your crowds will go up. Well, I came up to Newcastle last year for a game, Mick, and your hospitality was fantastic. It was a great night, and I'd definitely come again. But on that occasion, you played on a Friday night. Most of your games, of course, are on Sunday when I can't make it. Yeah. So, you know, but it was great. I'd recommend anybody to go up to Newcastle. And, Dav, obviously, the, the championship, a lot of clubs are working out. Toronto have, have done a lot, but, there's, I mean, York have, have been tremendous, and, and other clubs like yourself, of course. All those points that Mick touched on there, are we seeing that game-wide, those 
those things be worked on and, and ultimately those clubs see success off the back of that, do you think? I, I totally agree with what Mick said. I, I don't think there's enough clubs that do focus on that. You know, mm. People come to, to Rugby League for a number of different reasons. You know, we, we put a lot of emphasis on our, on our club mascot because you know, that, that mascot engages the, the younger audience. And you know, having, you know, having the cheerleaders and, and, and for me, being part of working in foundations over a number of years, they, they are a crucial part to your match day. You know, getting the, the foundation going out into schools and, and, and having a reason for these younger children to come and be involved in the match day and bringing the parents along. Mm -hmm. But what we've got to be able to do in, as a club is also capture that data. Yeah. I, I still, I think for 15 to 20 years I've been involved in the sport now and we're still talking about CRM systems. And, mm. you know, even at Featherstone, you know, we've not got a, a fully functional CRM system here. So, yes, we can collect data. But it's how you use that data, and, and, it, and it's, it's it's the key to to growing any audience. You know, I'm, you know, the only time I'm I'm a fan of I'm a fan of Leeds United, and I'm constantly now getting emails from Leeds United, and, and they're asking me for to buy a shirt or to buy a t or to do this or to do that or the, the market in the club in a certain yeah. way, and and we know that football is you know light years ahead of us in that in that capacity, and the funding, the resources that they've got is. It, it is massive, but the fact is that clubs like ourselves at Featherstone, you know, we we try to do what we can do to our resources. And you know, there's a, a close friend of ours, Matt Ryan Sparks, that when he came into Featherstone, he, he lifted the game here. You know, he he raised the bar, and 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 at the moment we did that, the fans were kicking back a little bit. They were, you know, we've got an aging fan base yeah. at Featherstone. They're not always into that what no. I would call that Americanized playing music after every try and. Yeah. And the you know the 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 uh, family fortunes sound when the player when the away team misses a goal and but do you know what it's one of them where people don't like change but we have to change yeah. if we're going to grow this sport into new audiences we're going to have to change we've got to understand the potential audience haven't we yeah you know that's that's the point mm -hmm. young people you know young people are just different now to what they were when we were much younger so so going 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 to the point on on Easter and and the the demands of playing over Easter, Good Friday, Easter Monday, and then obviously the one later in the week. I mentioned the fact earlier on, part-time players. Um, it's even tougher for them than the Super League mm. athletes, is it? Dav, in your opinion, should we be asking part-time clubs to play Good Friday and Easter Monday, or are we simply asking too much of them? I, I just think, you know, I go back to when I was a player as well. I, I think if you look after yourself as a, as a player, you know, you, then the... The, the nutrition and the supplements that players have got available to them now, mm. I can only speak for our club. It didn't. I didn't see a difference in our intensity from Friday to the Monday. Right. Um, but obviously, like Martin alluded to, there were some results over this weekend that have just been a little bit strange, to say the least. Mm. So, you know, we, we as a part-time club, again, we treat our players as they would be Super League players. You know, we've we've increased their supplements over the weekend. I've seen inf information come through from our strength and condition on the team app that's advising players what to do over the weekend because obviously, you know, when they had the Saturday and the Sundays off it and, and the weather being like it was, there was a uh, probably uh, a desire for them to go out and have a bit of a sunbathe and that. But no, the, the advice given from it was, no, right, make sure you're hydrating, make sure you're yeah. taking your supplements, make sure you're looking after yourself, you're eating well. You know, we've got a, a fantastic provider in LD Nutrition that provide all the food for our players across the week and out of game days. So I think the players have... Uh, I saw that that first hand. You know, I, I, I didn't see us drop off in intensity against, you know, a, a part-time club in York on the Friday to a full-time club on the Monday. Mm -hmm. Actually, if you watch the game, 
we probably look like the stronger team on Easter Monday. Mick, we'll mm. have to be concise here because we've only got about 45 seconds left. But from a marketing perspective, there's all other sports going on at the same time, isn't there, over, over the Easter period? Yeah. So do we simply have to do it as a sport to compete with them and, and get the audiences in? Yeah, I, th I, think, I think the Easter the Easter challenge is, 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 is interesting, isn't it? I think it's unique in our sport that you've got the Friday and the Monday. Mm. Um, we can't do it in League One, though, because I think the distance is involved. Sure. Uh, yeah. The fact we've only got 11 teams in the league as well means we only have to play uh, once over the Easter weekend. So um, it's not as much as a challenge for us. And, and ironically, we actually were the old team we didn't yeah. play. I tell you what, we'll come back to this just after break. We're going to have to take a quick break where we'll talk more about the Easter period and the ongoing cheating in the game. We'll be right back. Rugby League Back Chat is with you throughout the season. Right here is where you need to be for the very best debate from within the sport. Rugby League Back Chat on Free Sports. Welcome back to the second part of this week's Rugby League Back Chat at the LD Nutrition Stadium. Don't forget you can get involved in the debate that we're having on Twitter at RL Backchat. Before the break, gents, we were talking about the Easter period, the demands that are on the players. Martin, I want, I want to come to you on this because I know it's something you feel strongly about and it's a bit of a conundrum, isn't it? The players need protection and, and the welfare that comes in, but also the scheduling and you look at the other spots and what they're doing, rugby league simply has to compete. So where do we go? What do we do? Well, I think we could compete quite easily without playing two games over the weekend. I mean, for example, at the moment we play the first game on Thursday or Friday, then the second game on Monday. I can't see if we, why if we didn't have a single round of fixtures at Easter, we couldn't have games on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday and Monday. For example, you know, we, we, we could give, you know, the, the whole derby was played on the same day as the uh, Wigan St Helens derby. Does that which not actually, become... Which, a... actually, which actually meant that most, you know, you couldn't get to both games. If, Does it not become a scheduling to. nightmare though? No, I, I don't mean... think so. It, it, you, could, you, could, you could very easily play games you know, spread over a wider period of days over Easter. Mm, I think that would yeah. be quite an easy thing to do. And it would give, yeah. it would it, enable, enable more games to be televised mm -hmm. and it would enable every game to be presented as a genuine event, yeah. you know, which I think would be marvellous. So I don't see a problem with yeah. that. I'd go a step further, Martin. I, I would say, for example, Good Friday is for Super League. Mm. Perhaps have the Saturday off. That Sunday could be for League One, sure, yeah. and the Bank Holiday Monday could be for the Championship. So you get a real focus that, on each competition. That would be an interesting yeah. idea. Um, yeah. You know, it's not just the demands on the players either, is it? It's the demands on the fans. So there were six thousand St Helens fans went to Wigan on Friday. Pretty much most of those six thousand then have to turn out on a Monday and yeah. pay for a second set of tickets sure. and food and drink. Sure. It's a lot to ask the supporters as well when you when you include the travel as well. Um, so. I'm with you. I think one game over the weekend uh, is right. I understand the traditions. I understand the sort of special challenge that it, it, 
it, it offers, but at the same time, we, I think we've, we've, we've got to be sensible. The game is getting too fast now. It's too fast and too tough, I think, to ask players to play twice in uh, three or four days. David, I think Mick's made an excellent point there. And you talk about the demands on supporters. Just a quick point on the summer bash. Because the summer bash and the Magic Weekend have always been played a week, a weekend between, yeah. between each other. And obviously the costs of going to wherever you're going to stay over it, a lot of people can't afford to do it both weeks. Is that something we need to look at for those two weekends and maybe spreading them out a little bit more so that fans of both competitions can go to both? Yeah, I, th I think so, Matt. I mean, the, the problem you've got now in the Championship, certainly, is you've got... The Summer Bash was brought in because the, the competition needed an event. Mm. Uh, the thing is, you've got Toronto and Toulouse now where fans are treating them as their events for, yeah. for the season. And, you know, having, having been to Toulouse and seeing our fans out there, you know, a couple of weeks ago, the three or four hundred of them went out there and it, some of them have got some horror stories on how much they've spent on that weekend. And, um, but they all had a great time. But they all they? had a great time. Yeah. And that's where it's, you know, they all have a great time. And it's very similar to Toronto. You know, we, last year we took a couple of hundred to Toronto. I know this season there's, a, there's probably double that going because... Again, the experience that the fans had out sure. there was fantastic. But then that can possibly have a knock-on effect with Summer Bash now because I'm hearing more of our fans saying that they're only going to watch the Featherstone game at Summer Bash and not the weekend of, mm. of games that they would have traditionally done in the, over the past couple of years. So I think we have got a number of events happening in, in the Championship. And again, we just have to manage those expectations of what, we, of what we're trying to do with our fans. Mm. So, Martin, going back to that events culture we talk about, we've almost been a victim of our own success in that way, that there's almost becoming too many events and people can't afford to get well, to all Everybody of them. says this is the thing that affects the Challenge Cup final, isn't it? Because, you know, Wembley... I know when I was growing up, the idea of going to Wembley for the Challenge Cup final was absolutely magical. You know, everybody, right. yeah. everybody wanted to do it. It didn't matter who was playing, uh, whether it was your... Obviously, great if it was your team, of course, mm -hmm. but, but you still went because it was still a fantastic brilliant weekend and I remember going to the 1968 cup final mm -hmm. the water splash cup final as it became known when Leeds beat Wakefield 11-10 in that incredible game and my whole family went down and it was the first time my mother had ever been to London you know so you can imagine how excited she was you yeah. know it was just and you can't just imagine that now can you mm, it, it, yeah. you know those were such different days um, now the stadium at Wembley is so much better than it was, um, but it's just lost a little bit of the magic because it's no longer quite that, that special. So we've got to find a different way. I mean, some people say we ought to take the cup final away from Wembley, which I think is a ridiculous idea. I think it's the silliest idea I've ever heard of. Mm -hmm. We're going to have this 1895 Cup, of course. You might be there, David, with a bit of luck. Um, you might be there, Mick, in, 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 in the final of... That competition, wouldn't it be great? Featherston v Newcastle in the 1895. We'll try and sort it out. Yeah. But, you know, we've got to find ways like that or, or, or other ways of, of getting the crowds back to Wembley. Right, let's move on. Uh, I want to bring up a, a quote that Daryl Powell uh, came up with after their defeat to Catalans on Monday. I thought it was staggering. He was talking about cheating at the play the rook, effectively. Uh, Michael Shenton had, had been has got all sorts of, uh, of grief for basically winning a penalty by throwing a ball into a player. This is what Daryl Powell said. The amount of cheating in games is growing. Playing the ball into players on the floor, playing at 100 miles per hour, and we're cheating to combat the cheating. It's worse than football at the moment. David, I'm going to come to you first. Initially, what's your take on quite an incredible comment there from Daryl Powell? Well, it's, uh, yeah, it's quite 
quite a damning um, quote by by Daryl there, but you know I, I fully understand what he's saying because I think it's a ridiculous um, rule that when players are in the rook area and and a, a player passing the ball straight into the player laying down, I think it, I think it's ridiculous. Like you said, we're in a, a collision sport where players are naturally going to be left on the ground if you've got a dominant attacking player. But um, again, you know we see it week in week out. I think every every team is, is doing it because they're playing to this the rule that the referee now is allowing that to go on. I, I think we need to nip it in the bud. I, I don't like it at all. Mick, is, I mean, it's certainly happen, happening a lot in Super League. Is, is it as bad in Championship and League One? You do see it, yeah, and, and, and you don't want it because it's, it's, it's gamesmanship, isn't it? And you, you just want the game to continue and we don't want a game littered full of penalties. So I agree completely with David. Is we've just got to stamp it out. We had something similar in Rugby Union a few years okay. ago where... Again, you know, the scrum half was picking it up and deliberately throwing it into a player that was that was on the wrong side, and it got stamped out pretty quickly. And I think that's what needs to happen here. How did it get stamped out though? Because you know, if the player is on the wrong side, you know, is in is in an offside position, and and you simply take advantage of that by throwing the ball to him. The, the, the referee would just take a view that if the pass was deliberately aimed at the player, then it, it was gamesmanship. It was gamesmanship and a penalty. So I think we've got to bring that in here as well. I mean, it's interesting, though, isn't it? Because the, 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 what's happening is that the player who is making the tackle is then lying on the floor behind the player who's trying to play the ball uh, and getting in the way, basically. So you've got to say, should that be an automatic penalty? Or, or The rules of the game actually do say that when playing the ball, the player who's playing the ball should give the defending side time to get into position. So that would mean, does the player well, playing the ball have to wait for that player to well, get up behind him I, and I move mean, back Surely some common sense has to come in, well, into yeah, this, Well, yeah, but it's not as simple as it sounds. I, I think it? back in the day, Martin, when you used to just step to one side and play the ball, you know, there were yeah, a, yeah. a bit of a self-policing going on at the play of the ball. Well, maybe that's what ought to happen then, isn't mm, it, then, yeah. on, you know, to it, deal with this? It just, it just seems that, I mean, look, you, we're trying to sell it, we talk about broadcast deals and everything like that, and we're trying to sell the product. When you see players just chucking a ball at a player, I mean, we're not going to sell TV deals doing no, that, are we? No. Well, if that, that was all that Rugby League was, no, yeah. of course you wouldn't. No. But that, fortunately, it's still only a small part of the game. It just, it just seems, surely from listening to the players, Luke Gale's come out in a column and has, and has, has been very, very critical of this. Mm. David, do we just need to have some common sense and just say, look, we're not, we're not having this. Maybe take a Rugby Union stance and just say, if, if you're going to throw a ball at a player, if you're going to launch the ball into at the play of the ball, you're just going to get penalised yourself. I think as soon as a, a memo comes out from the RFL and the match officials to say yeah. that what Mick's just said, if you do that, you're going to get the, the penalty is going to go against you. It'll stop it. It'll stop yeah. it. But how, how far do you take it? Because, for example, you know, one of the things that Kieran Cunningham was always great at doing was picking the ball up from dummy half. And if he spotted players yeah. who were not marking square, he'd always run into them and win the penalty doing that. And, and it seems to me that that's gamesmanship as well, really. It, you know, maybe not quite so blatant mm. as what we're just talking about. But he always used to, you know, get away with it and, and get the penalty. And people used to say, well, that's really clever play by Kieran Cunningham. I, I think the players you need know. to be smart, Martin. They, yeah. they, they need to play to the rules. Of the, if, if players aren't marking square, that's the player's fault. And, sure. and Kieran Cunningham had it. But it should every, be a penalty, in fact, it should, Yeah, it? but what we're saying is a lot of the times here now, players are trying to play the referees instead yeah. of play the game. Yeah, yeah. You know, so... 
and more often than not, mate, the players that are, are having the, throw, the ball thrown at them are actually making a big effort to actually get out of the way, aren't yeah, they? Unlike yeah. the markers I, who may have been lazy not getting square. I think the other thing we have to look at, which has, has been in the game for a while now, is when, when player, the player with the ball is tackled, he's standing up and actually stepping forward two or three metres at times yeah. out of the rook area in, in order to get the markers not square or in order to get the tackler uh, on the wrong side of the rook. So that, that needs policing as well, is that where, where you tackle, you need to stand up and play the ball, not take a couple of steps forward yeah. and then play it. Martin, has the rook just become too complicated for referees to officiate now? <laughs> well, not being a referee, I'm, 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 I don't feel particularly well qualified to answer that, but I, I wouldn't have said so. But there, there are always problems arising in the game with coaches sort of trying to put one over referees, aren't they? You know, it's it's... It's as old as the hills, really, this idea that, you know, the, the, the rules of the game sort of evolve and coaches' thinking evolves to sort of try and take best advantage. But, if a, if whatever, a, if, but if a coach is admitting happened. that they are cheating mm. to combat cheating, then well, I surely think it's, that's I don't think it's cheating. Serious. I think it, 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 it's not cheating to take advantage of the rules as they're interpreted by referees. If, if you throw the ball into an opposing player... And you get a penalty by by doing that. Mm. You're not cheating because you're complying with the rules. Yeah, so, so the word cheating yeah. is inappropriate. Mm -hmm. But but it, but you could say it is gamesmanship in that you're, you know, you're using the rules to your own advantage. And you know that's the difference between cheating and gamesmanship. I don't play. I don't blame players for doing it if they can get away with it. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, th this week, for example, it's the 80th birthday of the great Alex Murphy. He was. Eight, he turned 80 on Easter Monday. And if there was one player who I've ever seen who was brilliant at gamesmanship, it was Alex. He was a genius. I mean, everything he, everything he did on a rugby field was, was, was at genius level, mm -hmm. in, in my view. But anybody who thinks that he wasn't brilliant at gamesmanship is an idiot, mm -hmm. quite frankly, because it was, and it was going on in the 1960s when he was at his height. He would take advantage of everything. He knew... He understood the psychology of referees more than anybody else mm -hmm. I think I've ever seen play the game. So, you know, it's not, whatever we say, it's not new, all oh. this sort of thing. On the obstruction rule, then, if we're to move it slightly on, because it's another <laughs> thing that's uh, causing a lot of anguish and despair in rugby league. D David, we've seen a number of uh, incidents in the last couple of weeks where tries have been disallowed and everyone's sort of not really knowing why. Is, again, is, is the rule and the interpretations not quite where they need to be at the minute. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. I mean, I think there's a lot of um, bad defensive um, calls going on against the, you know, the defending team who are just choosing now to, when they see a player running into the line, they're just mm. choosing to to make sure that player bumps into them so the, the, the try's uh, scratched off. But I think me, me and Martin just spoke off air. There's a lot of good try, good rugby league tries now that are being scratched off. And, and, and again, it just needs clearing up. I think personally, if you've got a player that's that's running through the line, a dummy runner, yeah. and, and he happens to have a collision with a, a defender that, that, in my opinion, has got no chance of stopping that rugby league try, mm -hmm. then it should be allowed. Yeah. You know, it should be allowed as a try. And again, it, 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 but we need to stop having these grey areas in our sport because nowadays, you, you know, we're seeing tries, especially in Super League, when it goes to the screen and you, we stood, the, you know, we sat there for two and a half minutes waiting for the try to be awarded or not. Well, I've said that. You know, the, the video referee shouldn't be able to decide on obstruction. It should be the referee on the pitch. And if the referee on the pitch calls it, then it's, then it's you know, a penalty. Mm -hmm. If he doesn't call it, 
you know, then it, it you know, it can't have been blatant because mm. the referee would have spotted it, spotted it if it were. Would, so let it stand. Would that not result in the attacking runners then being a bit more subtle in the in trying to? Well, there's also well, yeah. we've said just now that you know, coaches coach players on how to take advantage of the laws, and they do, and that's just mm. a fact of the game. But you know, what we don't want is great tries being disallowed. Yeah, I, I was watching the. Um, the, 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 the Parramatta and West Tigers game, the, f the first game played, played at the new Bankwest Stadium in Sydney on Monday. And Michael Jennings scored a brilliant try for Parramatta that wouldn't have been allowed in this country mm -hmm. because a dummy runner collided with a defensive player, um, but the bunker just said, well, that player wouldn't have got to the tackle. Yeah. So we're going to give the try. Yeah. Mm. In this country, it wouldn't have been awarded, and it was a great try. I, I think I remember. I can't remember. It was a, a magic weekend try, and I'm almost certain Danny Maguire scored it for Leeds. It's one of the best rugby league tries I've seen in a long time. Mm -hmm. Again, not awarded because yeah, we're, of looking, a, we're looking a soft for ways to disallow tries, Nick, to what, disallow great tries. What about uh, Daryl Parr's suggestion that we're worse than football? Are we pushing? <laughs> are we pushing <laughs> the boundaries a little I, bit? I, there? I think we're pushing the boundaries uh, <laughs> a bit there. I think, look, to be fair to the referees as well, it's possibly one of the most difficult sports in the world to referee I because so. there's so much subjectivity but the fact there's so much so much subjectivity means it's a great sport as well um at the rook you could probably penalize either team for three or four different things couldn't you and, and yeah you know it's so subjective on on, on the on, on sort of you know dummy runners and offside so to be fair to the referees it's really really difficult i think the one thing we do have to pick up on and it's something you've just mentioned there martin is We've got different. How are we still in a situation where we've got different rules on two sides of the world? A different you know, interpretation. Different interpretations. I can sort of live with because mm. you you you'll see that in sort of. I'll go back to rugby. You see a different way of refereeing in the southern hemisphere as you do in the northern hemisphere, but they have the same set of laws. And as a sport, we've got to get one unified set of laws throughout the game because I don't know any other sport in the world where there are different laws for no. different territories. Well, I think uh, after that, nobody will be putting their hands up to be a referee anytime <laughs> soon. Coming up after a short break, we'll be talking more about Easter and more general rugby league chat right here on Rugby League Bat Chat. Welcome back for the final part of this week's Rugby League Bat Chat. Gents, let's just go through any other business. Mick, I want to start with a point you made on Twitter. You were talking about travelling support and how it differs between Rugby League and Rugby Union. There's no point me going on about it, so you tell us just the point you were making in that regard. We, we were, it was a, actually a, a debate about relegation. Um, obviously, Newcastle Fulton is the, the, the other part of the, the club up at Newcastle. Um, are involved in a relegation battle in a minute. And there's an off-thrown line that relegation battles are great for crowds. And, and I was just trying to prove the point that actually they're not. And our recent game against Leicester, which was, unfortunately, a relegation battle 
or not an absolute decider, but it's gone a long way, was um, was between Newcastle and Leicester. And unfortunately, we lost that. But Leicester brought less fans than than Widnes and Bradford have brought to uh, to Kingston Park in the last in the last twelve months. So I think there's a the point I was trying to make was that you know relegation doesn't actually mean that you get huge supports and, the, and, and all the stats are there to show it. I think the wider point it, it brought out in, in terms of rugby league is that, you know, for whatever reason, rugby union, although the average crowds are bigger, yeah, um, the travelling support just isn't there. So Leicester will be as big a travelling support, even though they only sold five from the club, there's about 150 there. Um, that, that's that's the top end of travelling support in rugby union. For a team that gets about 20,000 for its home games, that's, that's really quite limited, isn't and, it? And David, compared to some championship clubs who won't have anywhere near as big a following as that, but in terms of percentages, the away supports can often be quite high, can't they? Yeah, I mean, this season, Halifax, you know, your Lee Centurions, you know, they bring a decent away following. Bradford Bulls are one of the top end as well. But again, you know, there's still some clubs that struggle to bring any numbers, you know, and again, I always believe that, you know, I'm going to go at your Jews, bring your Batleys and... Uh, at the clubs that are just you know three or four mile away from Feverston, they should be bringing a few more to, to the games. Mm -hmm. You know, we played Dewsbury down here early on in the season, and you know again there was about 50 fans from Dewsbury that that came to watch their team beat us down here at Feverston. You know, in my opinion, Dewsbury have been going okay this this season. They should be bringing a few more. But how many do you take away to, to away games? We're we're averaging around between 350 to 500. Right. You know, we have a pretty um, which is pretty good, isn't it? Yeah, pretty, pretty mm. strong away following it's and a um, large proportion of Europe. Home support. Yeah, yeah, and they, and they really, you know, they, they make themselves vocal and loud, and, uh, and and they get behind the team, and, it, and it's important that we have that following away from home. Do they all wear a flat cap? Are they all the flat caps? Yeah, more. I think so. that's a great identity for your supporters. You know. Yeah. It's, it's tremendous for a, a supporters group to have something that sort of identifies them. I, I think it's important that we yeah. that we keep the heritage within the club. Again, we, we spoke earlier Brilliant. about trying to change the the perception of the match day experience now, mm. but it's important that we do keep. The, uh, the traditions there and, and I think the flat cap I mean I watched our game against Toronto back on Sky and, and, and they were all there in the crowd with the flat caps on and the and then we've got Percy yeah, the yeah. pit pony that's that's going back the to the mining industry yes. so yes. but it's it, it's what it's what rugby league has it's got generational support if you ask a lot yeah. of supporters why they got involved it's usually because their father was involved and Absolutely. their father before them and and I think, to be fair to rugby union clubs, because the game's only been professional, you know, less than 25 years, it doesn't quite have that generational support yet. It will come. Mm. Um, and I suppose the one upside they can say is that perhaps they have, you know, rugby union has a bigger sort of footprint of support because the average crowds are higher in the, in the premiership, despite than not being big travelling support. So it's great. You want travelling mm. support because it adds atmosphere to the grounds. But too many clubs, or sorry, not too many, but a number of clubs only ever rely on Featherstone bringing three, four hundred, mm. or Lee or Bradford sure. bringing a thousand. Yeah. You, you, you want both, don't you? You want a bigger way of travelling, but you want the home club to be developing their own fan base as well. But yeah. as somebody who's involved in both codes, Mick, why is it that, you know, in, in the last 10 or 15 years, Rugby union clubs in the top division have been able to increase their support so substantially at home um, in a period when rugby league has, you know, only probably increased marginally. Well, why, is, why is it that they've been so much more successful at drawing in, you know, supporters for, for, for their matches than we have? Uh, 
I think there's a number of reasons. I think there's, there's a we mentioned it earlier. There's a big event culture in, mm. in in rugby union, so you know you see the big games at Twickenham and at, and at Wembley Stadium. We even have one at Newcastle now at St James's Park every year. Where we're, right. we're attracting thirty thousand. I think there's that. I think what also helps as well, which, which actually doesn't help away support, is the fact that there's a wider footprint of the sport, so we cover most of the country. Um, it's great that you've got the rivalries along the M62 corridor from all the traditional clubs, but it means it's pretty congested. So there are not a lot of new fans out there along that M62 corridor. And it, actually, if, if one club starts to do well, potentially is it to the detriment of other clubs? Are they pulling That's supporters from, from other clubs? So yeah. um, it, it's this wider footprint, isn't it? And it's, it's something mm. that it's a debate that I'm sure we haven't got enough time for uh, now. It's, so it's what expansion we need is a wider versus tradition. Yeah, yeah you, you need both. You yeah. need both. Yeah. I remember the last time you were on the show, Mick, you, you spoke really well about the schools programme you have in in Newcastle and, and how all the junior clubs are coming up and, and progressing. That helps build the, the footprint within the own, your own city. How, how is that developing at the moment? It's developing again. So we've just, our 13th club's just launched in Hartlepool uh, wow. across the region. So we've, we've, we've got our own competitions at three different junior age levels and, and then senior. Statistics will show you, you're seven times more likely to go and support and watch rugby league if you've played the sport. Mm. So it, it's pretty simple. The more people you can get involved in playing the sport, whether that's at school and hopefully at club level, potentially the more supporters that that sport will then have. So it's not easy, though. It takes 15, 20 years. It, you've got to create that generation of supporters that, that we don't have. You know, mm. Featherstone have it and, and Lee have it and Bradford have it. We, we don't have a generation of supporters supporting professional rugby league from 25 years ago. I guess so what was the typical profile, though, of a Newcastle Thunder supporter? You know, you've got, you're probably... You're up to about a thousand, aren't you, for those yeah. of your home games? Yeah. What's what's the profile? How have they? How have those guys or women, whoever they are, come to support you as a club? Do you think it's 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 heavily family based. So it's a mm. lot of uh, of what we do in the community. We mentioned mm. it earlier about the match day experience. So we put a lot of effort into making sure that you know the food and drinks right, the transports right. You know, it's clean, it's safe, it's welcoming, it's modern, it's got technology there. So it's all the things. If you grow into sport, and, and, and David mentioned earlier, data's huge now. It's not just how you collect the data, but it's what you do with it and how you communicate with fans. So if you get your data right, you get your match day experience right, you know, you get a good community programme, um, and then hopefully a bit of success on the field. That's the key to growing your, yeah. your support. What do you think base. the potential is for your club then, for example, if, it, if you got in the championship? Do you think you'd be able to get up to 2,000 and beyond at that yeah, level? Yeah, you, you'd certainly want to hope so, wouldn't you? That mm. if, you know, yes, we would benefit from, from what we were just saying earlier about bigger travelling supports, but mm. that bigger travelling support then gives a better match day atmosphere and hopefully you're pulling a few more, uh, uh, well, a lot more home supporters. So that's very much the ambition of our club, is to get into the championship, if not this season, then uh, the season after. And that's a really tough league, so I think your first year in the championship, you'd have to consolidate, make sure you don't get relegated back down again, and then kick on from there. David, you've got a completely different challenge at Featherstone in the fact you're in a district blessed with so many teams. So how does the challenge differ for you and what do you have to do to try and pull in the, the floaters as such, the people who maybe aren't going to watch rugby league regularly now? I, I think, it's again, it's like Mick's saying there, you know, we yes, we've got Castleford and Wakefield on our doorsteps and naturally if you're... Um, we, we're not a Super League club by a status, but off-field we can we can act like a Super League club. And you know what we've blessed with here at Feverston is the the facilities here are very good. The uh, the staff work tirelessly to um, to engage the, the younger audience. But naturally, you know it it is a challenge. The one thing that we haven't got in Wakefield is obviously a professional football team. And you know at the moment, while that sport's dominating most people's minds, you know we we're, we're kind of lucky that we haven't got that. But we have got. 
Castleford and Wakefield that are doing relatively well in Super League at the moment in time. So, the, you know, the, what we always say here at Featherstone is we have to be relevant. You know, we have to keep trying hard. We, we're implementing new new things on a match day. We've got the new fan zone down uh, down by the turnstiles, which, you know, over this week, you know, the Good Friday and the Easter Monday, it's been absolutely chocker and people have really adapted to that and, and loved the fan zone concept. But again, you know, it is for me, it's um, it's just improving the infrastructure in terms of the IT and the, uh, the social footprint of our club. One similarity you both have that you've done very recently is appoint young coaches. Very, I think Ryan Carr's the second youngest in, yeah. in the UK. Simon Finnegan in his first head coaching role and he, he's very young as well. What was the thinking, I'll start with, with you, Mick, what was the thinking behind going down a young coach and, and going down that route rather than maybe going for someone with more experience? I mean, well, for, for the first thing we did was appoint Dennis Betts, obviously director of rugby, and it was Dennis's call as, as who he wanted to bring in as head coach, and he spoke very, very highly of, of Simon. And I think, I think David will probably agree with me here, you, you just get a sense with coaches, almost age doesn't become an issue. You know when you've got a good coach, you know somebody who gets the sport really quickly, really easily. Not just the coaching side as well, but the man management of, of players, that's the most difficult bit for me. And, and Dennis, Dennis couldn't recommend Simon more highly and, and from what we've seen really in, in just the first three weeks we've we've made a great appointment and on Ryan as well yeah very, you know Mark went out to Australia for a for a week or so and and he met Ryan and, and again he, he was highly recommended from a number of top rugby league personalities in Michael Maguire and Ricky Stewart and and again what Ryan's bringing to Feverson is he's got a lot of energy and he, he is working with a part-time team and the challenges that the, the dual registration faces on, on, on week to week is uh, is now getting used to that. But um, you know, Ryan Ryan is working tirelessly with the team and he's and he's trying to improve in areas that the team needs to improve. And you know, Ryan's got ambitions to be a, a top coach one day, whether that's at Featherstone Rovers or, or away from the club. We want it to be at Featherstone, and he's on a he's on a longer term deal. Mm -hmm. um, and, it, and it's, it's, we're reaping the rewards, finally. You know, we're into round 12 now and we're starting to reap some of those rewards of his hard work. Martin, how exciting is it that we seem to have a new generation of young coaches coming through at Super League? You've got Ian Watson, you've got Chris Chester in the Championship, James Ford, Richard Marshall, Ryan Carr, you've got Simon Finnegan coming through. How good is it for the sport that all these guys are coming through and, and predominantly British as well? Well, in Super League, there are six British coaches and six overseas coaches, aren't there? Six Australian coaches. And we actually had a league table in League Express about a month ago showing that on head-to-heads, the English coaches were just marginally ahead of, mm. of the Australian. We'll probably run that again fairly soon just to see if it's still the case. But, um, you know, it's interesting. The, the two top sides in Super League are saying some Warrington and they're both Australians. But some of the clubs towards the bottom are uh, Australian too. So, you know, it, it's uh, six or one and a half a dozen of the other. But it's great. I mean... The thing that concerns me is that there is a pathway for English coaches into Super League, you know, and, and you know, some of the guys currently in the Championship who are doing so well, James Ford at York is, is a perfect example who's been on this, this, this show. Um, you know, you think that ultimately you want to see him as a Super League coach, whether it's with York, if York ever get into Super League, which mm -hmm. is certainly not beyond the realms of possibility, or, or with another long-established Super League club, you know. I, I, I don't like to see, you know, clubs going on mass to Australia. I think in in certain circumstances, it's the right thing to do. But you know, we we, we want to make sure that we want more Daryl Powells, don't we? Coming out of the Championship and coming into the Super League, and and 
and, and, and creating a bit of a stir there. You know, and that's, that's you know, we, we want that balance. And I think it's great, actually, on the other hand, to have Australian input because, you know, a lot of innovations occur in Australia that it's great to see coming over here. So it's, 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 a, it's a sort of subtle mix as far as I'm concerned. Just uh, moving on slightly, sticking on the championship, though, uh, it's now been confirmed, David Craig, if I'm wrong, that the winner of the playoff final, the million pound game, whatever calling it, will be played at the home grounds venue. Uh, how significant is that? Is it not significant at all? It's just something that seems to have happened and not really been, been discussed anywhere. Yeah, I think personally that should have been taken to a neutral venue. Um, again, you, you, you possibly, if we look at how the, the league is at the moment, you know, having a, a grand final in Toronto is uh, just logistically a bit Difficult. of a nightmare and mm. uh, you know it's I know I know look I don't want to sound like I'm bagging Toronto because they, they do make it pretty easy for us to get over to Toronto and they, and they cover a lot of the finances that, that's um, attributed to it but yeah it's a, it, it could be a bit of a nightmare having to find a, a trip to Toronto within a, a week or so of uh, knowing that you're in that grand final so I, I think a neutral venue should have been the call. Mick you have the same opinion? Or? I disagree um, I, I actually think that the the team that finishes top or qualifies first for the final has, has, has earned the right to stage it. And, you know, a question now, Headingley was mentioned, if, if we got Toronto v Toulouse at Headingley, I, I, I don't think we'd, we'd have three or 4,000 people there. Mm -hmm. I, know it's, I know we can say we could market it earlier. That wouldn't be a great look for the sport. So, um, you know, if Toronto finished top, for, for them to have to come back to England to play in the grand final, I don't think it's just rewards for, for, for finishing in that position. But yes, it's six of one and a half a dozen of the other, isn't it? Because I, I, I agree that if you're going to make a, a grand final and call it a grand final, I don't think they are calling it a grand final, they're calling it the promotion final, if I understand it correctly. But, you know, I, I, I like to see it as a big event at a neutral venue. I mean, you know, from, from what Mick just said, you know, you'd, you'd assume that the Super League grand final would be at the home of the highest place club as well. You know, that, that would be the same argument, wouldn't yeah. it? But... Um, and, and, it, and, and, and I certainly take Mick's point about if it was Toronto and Toulouse mm -hmm. being played at Headingley, you know, it would be a, it would be a hard sell. There's no, no doubt about that. But nonetheless, I still feel that, you know, there'd be a lot of people wanting to see that, that, that game as neutral fans. Well, and, we'll, you, know, we'll, you, you, you might get, who knows? Well, we'll never know. That's all we've got time for this week. Thanks to my guests, Martin Sadler, David Longo and Mick Hogan. Don't forget, you can get involved in the debate too. Head to Twitter and get in touch at RLBackChat. From all of us here, have a good week. We'll see you next time for another edition of Rugby League Backchat. Bye for now.